Hi, I'm John Coe, and welcome to Icons of DC Area Real Estate, a one-on-one interview show highlighting the backgrounds and career trajectory of leading luminaries in the Washington, D.C. area real estate market. The purpose of the show is to highlight their backgrounds and their experiences and some interesting stories about their current business as well as their past, and uh, to cite some things that you might take away, both from an educational standpoint as well as lessons learned in the industry, and some amusing and sometimes interesting background stories. So I'm hoping you will enjoy the show. Before I introduce my guest for this episode, I want to share some information about Co-Enterprises, my company. It serves income-producing real estate market participants through four distinct platforms. First, I advise early-stage real estate companies on securing project financing and on forming and executing operating and financial strategy. My current clients include Brick Lane, a multifamily investment and development firm who began in D.C. and has expanded to the Southeast U.S. with many acquisitions and projects, and One Circle Co., an early-stage multifamily developer and investor in Boston who was nearing their first development project. Two, career counseling for early and mid-career real estate professionals with a program approach, including two one-hour sessions and follow-up six-months progress reports. My clients range from recent college graduates to mid-career executives who are contemplating change. And three, of course, this podcast. Sharing knowledge and insights of market leaders. I want to give a special shout out to my associate on this effort, Colin Madden, who provides ProScript perspective and marketing assistance to produce the podcast. And finally, for deriving from the podcast listener base and my experience as a ULI mentor, Colin and I initiated the iconic journey in CRE, a community of young professionals from 22 to 40 years old who participate and contribute to online and live meetings, property tours, mastermind groups, book readings, and career resources. In summary, Co-Enterprise's mission is to provide, motivate and guide high-achieving individuals and young companies to get the results they want, and in doing so, to elevate the D.C. area real estate community. To learn more, click on my website, coenterprises.com, or reach out to me at john at coenterprises.com to learn about any of these services. Thank you for listening. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Icons of DC Area Real Estate. My guest for today's show is Chuck Waters, who is the Senior Managing Director of the Heinz Organization Office here in Washington, DC. Chuck has been with Heinz, which is perhaps one of the top three or four largest development firms in the world for 33 years now having been starting his career in the, in the New York office, moving to Detroit to manage the perhaps the largest mixed-use development project in, in the world at the time, the Renaissance Center, and then coming to Washington, D.C. to eventually take over the office here when Bill Alsop uh, stepped down recently. His experience both in project management and office management with people is impressive and with hugely complicated projects and multiple teams to manage and counsel. 
very few developers have the opportunity to develop huge projects in three different urban markets like Chuck did. So please enjoy this wide ranging conversation with Chuck Waters. So Chuck Waters, welcome to Icons of DCRI Real Estate. Thank you for joining me today. Thanks, John. I'm pleased to be here. So I wonder if you could describe your role at Heinz and your day-to-day focus, if you would, please. Sure. So my title here is Senior Managing Director. I'm what we call in Heinz a city head. And so I'm responsible for the Mid-Atlantic region, which is basically based here in Washington, D.C., but we cover Pennsylvania through Virginia is sort of the scope. And, you know, my my job is to really help initiate and find new business for the office. But it's also, I mean, I view a big part of my position as working with the, the project leaders within the office as a sounding board or to help, you know, set strategic direction for what we want to look at and and also to be kind of a mentor and to and to roll up my sleeves and and jump in and help as I can on individual projects. So it's it's sort of you know the what you would expect of someone that's you know we we at Heinz the people in my position really come up through the project management ranks and at some point you can't really indulge in working on individual projects anymore, although I try to dip into them when I can. So it's really a management role and leadership role as opposed to a development and project role to some extent. Yeah, I mean, I there are, I, I do get involved in, in projects. You know, for instance, I'm, I have a fair amount of involvement in the Walter Reed project. And we have a project up in, it's sort of a similar scale and size right outside of Philadelphia, mixed use development that I'm involved in, but there's only so much time I can spend, but I do like to dip into projects when I can. We'll get into more details about that here shortly. So in the meantime, let's tell us about your origins, Chuck, your youth and parent parental influences. Where'd you grow up? So I, I I lived in different places. I was born in Arizona and I lived in California and Southern Ohio, but I I really grew up, you know, junior, middle school and high school in Erie, Pennsylvania, up on the lake. And my father had different jobs, but he was basically a, a sales manager for many years. And when we moved to Erie, he had taken a job for sales sales management in an assembly machinery company. And then eventually he started his own assembly machine business. And so he was, you know, the classic widget maker in that part of the country where tool and die is a big part of, you know. Uh, the business there. And what industry was he feeding? The auto industry, the steel industry. It was. They were basically partly, but they were all small piece parts. You know, smaller than your fist. So they made different things like light assemblies for an automaker. They made the little alligator clips. They made. A, they made like thermostats for washing machines. It was. Huh. In the era where you know quality control became more important, and so there would be probes on the machines to make sure that they were assembled within a certain tolerance. It was mm-hmm. a very, very engineering intensive business. Was he trained as an engineer or not just really? I mean, he did he did have engineering 
he he had some engineering courses. He went to Cornell University, but I think he was more of a business major. But he always had sort of aptitude in terms of putting things together mechanically, which which by the way bypassed me completely. But but so 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 that was that was sort of the, the background. And and we so from my perspective, I was you know I was used to living in different places, if you will. And so I. You know that that was my that that's that's where I grew up. You know, I, I associate myself with junior high school and high school. Sure. So you follow your dad. I mean, were you interested in what he was doing? I mean, well, well, so after I graduated from college, I went to work there almost by default. Like I didn't really have a plan, and I worked <laughs> there for about a year and a half, or actually a couple of years. And, and I think what what came out of that was as a very I mean, that's a complicated, risky business because they would sell, you know, 10 to 20 machines a year. And if one or two of them, you know, didn't really work out, it, it sort of affected the profitability. So it was a tough business. But what I decided from that was I really needed to get some schooling, business schooling, because I had been a history undergraduate major. And so that's that's when I went off to Columbia. So you went to Cornell undergrad as well, like your dad? Colgate, Colgate undergrad. Oh, Colgate. Colgate, right. History major okay. and loved it. I mean, I have, I still have a number of really good friends from, from college. We, we, it was just a, a great, it's a very, you know, rural, small, mm-hmm. 2800, you know, undergrad campus. But, but I think because of that, because it's sort of isolated, game made some very good friendships there. But after, as I say, after school, I went back and worked in my father's company for a couple of years and then, you know, went to to New York to Columbia Business School. Mm-hmm. Interestingly, I, I did summer camp my after my senior year on Lake Moraine. Oh, yeah. Wow. Which is right next to the Colgate campus, actually, yeah. in Hamilton, New York. Yeah, we used to go, we had a, we had to have a summer because of the housing, we had to go a summer term, and we spent a lot of our summer term at Lake Moraine. Mm-hmm. Upstate New York is beautiful, and mm-hmm. I'm currently experiencing that now, actually. So, yeah. <laughs> so you went on to Columbia Business School. Why Columbia, and what what other choices did you have, or did you look at other opportunities? I think I interview. I think I I I applied to Wharton, Columbia and Northwestern got into Northwestern as well. So it really came down to, did I want to be in New York or did I want to be in Chicago? And you know, I, I felt like I'd been from being in the area, I'd sort of done the Midwest thing. And I, and there were a lot of people at Colgate from the East coast. So I decided I really wanted to give New York a try. Mm-hmm. So that's how I decided. And then they, I wasn't really sure what my major would be, but you know, when I thought about it at the time, Columbia was more finance and Northwestern was more marketing. And I thought I'd end up gearing more toward the finance side of the world. Mm-hmm. So you must have been pretty smart at Colgate. You must have done pretty well to get into those schools, I would imagine. Well, it was history. So I could sort of, you didn't have right or wrong answers. It was just, <laughs> oh, well, you, so you could, must be a good writer. Yeah. <laughs> That's oh great. God. That's great. So I don't think they're as selective either as they are today. Yeah. So did you did you focus on finance at, at Columbia or did you look at other disciplines there? Yeah, focus? well, I think I I you know I ended up having a finance sort of concentration, but there were 
you know, you 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 cover a lot of the bases. So mm-hmm. I've, I I think I got sort of a typical business school education. So did you catch the real estate bug at Columbia? Not really. I I actually when I got out, I worked at PepsiCo at their really? and purchase and I. The, I I basically I where I got the real estate bug was one of my roommates after Columbia was was also you know he was he, we were friends at Columbia Business School and became roommates and we rented a house with a couple other guys from Columbia up in Ludlow Vermont we were ski we were skiing mm-hmm. they would drive up on the weekends and my friend Tommy Craig started he actually started his last semester from Columbia before he even graduated at Heinz. And so really when we would when we would drive up to Vermont, we'd sort of talk about what we were doing, you know, that week. And his job seemed a lot more interesting than mine. So that's how I got interested in real estate is sort of through through my friend Tommy. So how did Pepsi Cola get on your radar? I mean, did you just do the traditional interviews and stuff the second yeah. year trying to figure it out? I mean, it was a finance position. And I thought, you know, there was a part of me that thought, well, maybe what I'll do is get more grounded in the in the finance world, corporate finance, and then maybe go back. You know, in the back of my mind was perhaps I would go back to the family business, but I, I wasn't really sure. But I thought that would be a decent exposure. So that, that's that's how I ended up there. Sure. So your buddy, Tommy, then did he talk you into going over there for an interview? Or well, so then, so then what happened was I got interested in real estate and I, I ended up through connections talking to a guy by the name of Scott Malkin, who was third generation. Mm-hmm. His, his grandfather is a gentleman by the name of Lawrence Ween. Right. Partners with Harry Helmsley, and they had a number of real estate interests together. His Scott's father, Peter Malkin, was a named partner at the time. It was Ween Malkin and Bedix. Right. And they had had, when Helmsley and Ween split up, they had created a company which at the time was called WM Properties. And Mm -hmm. that was, you know, the Ween and Malkin stuff that they owned independent of the Helmsley stuff. And so Scott was third generation. He had just gotten a a joint degree, Harvard Business Law, and much to, I think, his father's chagrin, instead of joining the law firm, he joined W&M. And so he wanted to hire a bunch of young Turks, and I was one of them, you know, that that got in working with them. And so I, I spent about I don't know, five and a half years at WM, we were doing primarily property asset management and some acquisition. And then Scott at one point left, sort of toward the end, he left to go to, to London and where he created a company called Value Retail, which has been enormously successful, mm-hmm. building out, you know, sort of outlet shopping centers and starting in Europe and then in Asia and now I think in the US. But, you know, I got exposed to family real estate business, you know, in New York. So my knowledge of the Wien and Malkin organization is that they owned at one point the Empire State Building. And I don't know if they owned it while you were there or not, but uh, yeah, they they had they had an ownership interest in it. It was controlled at that time. Well, the, they they definitely did along with Helmsley, and they eventually got secured control of it. But they had 
the Graybar Building, the Toy Center Building, the Lincoln Building, which is where our office was, the Empire State Building, and a number of other things. And and Ween was a really interesting character. I mean, I did feel fortunate to work for them because he was really the first, he, he was the lawyer that sort of initiated the limited partner syndication format of owning property. And so he was the deal structurer, capital raiser, and Helmsley went out and found the deals and negotiated them. And so when we had our W&M quarterly, you know, partner board meetings, it Mr. Ween would sort of impart his knowledge to the young, you know, team, especially Scott, you know, in these meetings. So it was, and he was sort of the quintessential, you know, well-connected, very articulate New York lawyer. So it was a it was an interesting experience for me. You must have learned a lot there, I imagine. Yeah. Well, you you learned a lot. And I, I think in real estate, too, you learn a lot by trial and error. You learn some by making mistakes. But, you know, we, we did. We had, a, we, we had fun. We did a lot. Mm-hmm. So you're mostly an asset management there. Did you do any development? Yeah, no, we, did, we bought... We bought a, a an office building in Nashville. We bought a, an apartment building, actually, at an auction held by Christie's in Des Plaines, Illinois. Yeah, and it was a, it was like a, it was a busted deal that Zell had or something, and and it right. ended up being a really good, you know, a successful acquisition. Although I left fairly shortly after that. Was what time time span was this now that you were there? This would have been so eighty four to eighty nine. So right before the crash, then. Yeah. So I joined Heinz. So Heinz had a an opening for what they called at the time an assistant project manager. So I actually took a I I actually took a, a demotion in a way to join Heinz, but I just felt like it was I really wanted to do development, and that's not what W and M was set up to do at the time. And of course, through my friend Tommy, I knew you know, about Heinz. And this was a position at 450 Lexington, which was a 450 Lexington was a 40 story office building that was built right. It's literally right next to the MetLife building at the time. It was the Pan Am building Mm -hmm. on 45th and Lex. And so there was an eight story post office built in, you know, 1909 or something, the outer walls, which need to be preserved. So we basically gutted the interior of the building it was like a big donut just demolishing it and keeping the exterior facade which was historically significant and then coming up with the structure through the eight stories and 32 stories over it it was a really interesting project so that was that was my first you know involvement at Heinz. wow that's a, that's a big one to start with <laughs> yeah well and so and and for me you know, I'll never forget my first day in the job we were Turner was the general contractor and we're sitting in their office, which was like on the sixth floor or something of the old post office building with buckets of water coming because they were basically demolishing the structure. And when you do that, you know, you've got robots and jackhammers and stuff, but they water it down to, you know, control the dust. And so, you know, my I was just remembering that there was like, water all you know buckets catching the thing they were about ready to move out of the building because you know, so were you in a suit with a tie on at the time or what yeah yeah but i learned you know when i went to the building 
you know, <laughs> yeah, it was suit and tie environment. But Carrying buckets of water. <laughs> yeah. And we, we also, I mean, the other thing, it was a really baptism by fire, but the building was built completely over the tracks of Grand Central Terminal. And Ooh. so we had, you know, we had what were called mega columns. There were four large concrete reinforced structure, two of them big square pieces because that they, they were they were built on the platforms, you know, for Metro North. And then on the eastern side, there were just rails for storing tracks. So the the distance between the 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 tracks was much thinner. And so they were longer, thinner mega columns. But basically if you think about what we had was a classic center core building. And so the structural grid of the office tower didn't correspond to where the foundations would be. Ooh. So all of those had to take place within the envelope of the old post office. We called it a, a tabletop. And what's interesting is you had, you know, th this is a steel, you know, frame construction, but it looked like Tinker Toys where you had, you know, these angled columns that came down and, and all had to fit, you know, and, and there was there was one thing for the structural engineer to do it, but it actually all worked. You know, that was that was one of the risks of the projects. But it was it was a fascinating, you know, deal. So the, you must have learned some right up front. Some oh, I learned a lot engineering worked, things that you'd never heard or seen before. Yeah, so I, I basically took it as an opportunity to go to school on our uh, with our construction managers and our engineers about, you know, all of the aspects of what was going on. And I, you know, the funny thing is, John, we used to take, you know, like bankers and stuff on, you know, they'd want to see the site. And we'd, we'd, we'd say to the women, wear flats, don't wear high heels. And, you know, you'd issue like the the hard hat and the vest and stuff, but we would we would warn them that look, we we're pretty sure that the that the electrified rail's been turned off, but make sure to st step well over it because <laughs> we can't guarantee it. You know, <laughs> it was wild. Was so, peeling back just for a moment. So at W and M, you were learn you learned the finance side. You learned you understood how to underwrite a deal how to structure a deal, how to do a pro forma and all that kind of thing, at least on an operating property. Right. So then when you moved and over leasing, to... I, and leasing and property management. Right. Like all those things. Yeah. So you learned all the basic real estate fundamentals at W&M, basically. And then right. coming to Heinz, you then said, okay, now I got to look at how we got here. <laughs> So the development side of things. So it's a whole different thing. And in the New York, I mean, to start in a project like that in New York City, and my sense is you had some historic issues you had to deal with. You had to, beyond the, the construction side, there, the pre-development side there had to have been interesting. So talk about yeah. that a little bit. Yes. Yeah. Although I came into it, that had already been done. Like I, when yeah. I, when I literally, when I was there, it was under construction. Okay. And my, you know, the other thing in my first day on the job was <laughs> I, I walked into my office and I had a pile of documents, ground yeah. lease, the lease with our anchor tenant, our joint venture agreements, our agreements with Metro North and the MTA. And they're like, here, kid, abstract these. You need to understand. You need to know how this whole thing comes together. So I missed the design part of the project, but I just 
jumped in immediately to the you know the the project oversight and and also I went to school personally on the construction and the mechanical systems and all that just for my own edification but I think unlike a lot of Heinz assistant project managers because the the template is to hire someone out of business school you know that may have some real estate experience I had I had a fair amount of experience so I was able to I was able to get involved probably beyond what a typical APM would would you know be exposed to pretty early on so we had about six months into the project our director of leasing for the New York office left he went to work for CBRE and so I got involved because I'd had background in it I was able to immediately launch into leasing the building and we had it was 900,000 square feet of office space half of which was leased to Davis Polk. And so I, you know, I got involved in leasing the other half. So so for me, because I had some familiarity and I think that my, you know, my boss felt comfortable and the project manager for the project was very unusual at Heinz. He was keenly interested in, in construction and so was willing to, you know, not get involved in the leasing. And so that was an opportunity for me. You know, it's interesting. Had you started at Heinz before you did the Wien and Malcolm thing, your your learning curve would have been much, much more difficult, it seems oh, to me. Oh, for sure. It, I, would, um, I would have started out green and, you know, it would have taken me a lot longer. Because, I mean, from what I read, and you said it already about Lawrence Wien, he may have been one of the brightest real estate minds in, in American history, frankly. From what I've read, he is was a brilliant, absolutely brilliant lawyer and was the architect, as you said, of, of the partnership structure. And and then Tony Malkin and the whole Malkin family, just really bold developers and, and, yep. and operators of real estate. So you you got a tremendous opportunity. I didn't realize that that was your background. So that's that's really intriguing because yeah, they just they're just one of the top five groups in New York City, really, I think. And, sure. And then you go over to Heinz, and I don't know, at that point, this is, might be a good segue to talk about Heinz a little bit and how it got to New York and its history. But, I mean, obviously, at that, even at that point, Heinz was one of the top 10 firms in the, in the world in, in development, I think, at that point even. So maybe step back now and talk a little bit about the Heinz organization, and then we'll come back down to, to the D.C. area and, and your evolution as a, as a manager here. So, so Heinz, you know, Jerry Heinz started the firm in 1957. He, he was a, Jerry was a mechanical, he had a mechanical engineering background from Purdue. And after World War II, he moved down to Houston, as he describes it, because he had fraternity buddies down there. But he got involved in an HVAC firm that was installing air conditioning systems, which, you know, post-war in Houston, <laughs> big boom business. And he was at a barbecue or something, and his neighbor said, hey, I need to build, I need a warehouse. And Jerry said, well, I'll build it for you. And that's how he started. Mm -hmm. So he was doing projects on the side. And then in 1957, he started his own company. And I think for many years, he basically built industrial and office in Houston. And then, you know, his big jump was when Royal Dutch Shell was looking for a new uh, headquarters, American headquarters, he he talked them into doing a building for them in downtown Houston. 
And at the same time, did the Houston Galleria. So Jerry like launched big scale, big time up into major projects. And in the course of the 70s and the oil bust in Houston, I think what happened was, you know, Jerry learned two things. One is I'm not going to have all my eggs in one basket from an equity standpoint. And that's where Heinz started to bring in institutional investors and take smaller portions of deals in order to have more of a portfolio. And second was geographic expansion. And so the first thing that Heinz did is they created a, they, 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 they figured out that they could embark on a program to build, you know, sort of regional banking headquarters. And so there were two guys, Tom Swift and Ken Hubbard, that sort of got on a plane and went around the country and did that. And then they started what they called the East-West Division. So Tom was in San Francisco and Ken came to New York. And so Ken and then a guy named David Lawrence opened the New York office and they got two projects simultaneously. One what was, year was that? That would have been probably 80, well, let's see, probably, probably 81. Because, you know, 82, Tommy was one of the first hires there. And so they they basically had secured a site, 31 West 52nd Street, which became EF Hutton's headquarters, and 885 3rd Avenue, 53rd at 3rd, known as the Lipstick Building. And the, that was a site that we bid on in the Wilpont family, who at the time, you know, bid on and decided that we would team up on that. And so Heinz entered the New York market with two projects. How, how did they get credibility with the New York bankers? Breaking into New York City is not the easiest thing to do as a developer. So talk about how they built the credibility to come in and, and, and develop there. In well, they had capital behind them. And I think that was an important part. That was the Kuwait investment office at the time. That came in on those. So that so I think when you and I think that you know if you showed the resume that of work that Heinz had done in Houston and then starting to branch out throughout the country. And, and Jerry, one of the things that Jerry's credited with is being, I think, I don't know if it's the first, but one of the first developers to hire world-renowned architects to do office buildings. Because prior to that, most of the architects, you know, of that ilk were doing, you know, universities or major, you know, there were major institutions backing them. Right. And Jerry, Jerry was always interested in quality. And I think he felt like, you know, if we do distinctive office buildings, that would be a corporate calling card where the, you know, whoever, whoever the anchor tenant is, is going to be able to track tenants and, and all of that. And I think deep in the in the the Heinz DNA is this this emphasis on quality. But I think the fact that that Jerry at the time could point to, hey, we've worked with Philip Johnson and you know who had done some buildings in Hugh HOK, Skidmore Owens and Merrill. I mean it just it, he already had had that under his belt. And so I think there was probably some interest in, well, let's see what this guy can do here. Mm -hmm. So two projects right out of the chute were the first two deals in New York City then. Eh? Right. Okay. Right. And, and then they leased up well? It's interesting. So yeah, so the so Hutton took the entire building 
Mm -hmm. started construction literally the same week. One building was 100% leased. One building was 100% spec. But the way that, the, and Kevin Roach had done it, was the architect for 31 West 52nd, Philip Johnson for 53rd and 3rd. But I think the way that the Kuwait Investment Office looked at it was we're 50% pre-lease. So. Well, the bankers would think that way too, I would think, when you're doing a construction loan, although you might do that in two phases, I would think. But right. interesting. So then, and then you, your project was what, the third or fourth, the one that you did, or was it uh, well into the? 450 more? would have been the third project, really, in terms okay, so of. So you're, you were early on in that tenure there. Yeah, I was fairly early on. There, there's a, and within Heinz, there's really a generation. The first generation were people that were all in Houston. Right. I think the second generation, which I, I don't know if I'm second generation, but, but have have worked with people that at least started in Houston. So yeah. I I I'm, I kind of feel like I'm a maybe I'm third because the company is 60 years old now but um, <laughs> you know. So you were in these, you were in New York for how long? About 9 years. No, so, so you were there did, quite so a the lot. second big project I did there was the um, John Blank now 383 Madison which became Bear Stearns headquarters building. And that was a 52-story building. Again, right, this one was 60% over Grand Central, not 100%, but another, you know, complicated project. Both were SOM design, and this one was a, a fee development. We didn't have equity interest, but we, you know, we were, we, Heinz and the and Sterling Equities, the Wilpon family, uh, we're working, you know, in advising Bear Stearns. And so we, you know, we help them acquire the site, transfer air rights and, you know, design and build the building. So how did in scouting deals? I mean, and I don't you don't you do that in D.C., but did you get to the point where you were actually looking at sites and yeah, and acquiring sites to what was yeah, your so criteria? We, what was your criteria? Yeah, for? Had, uh, I mean, New York's a tough market. Yeah. But we had in, in this in this example, like on the 383 Madison example, you know, we knew what the major sites were and we kind of knew their geographic parameters of what they were looking for. And and they were at 245 Park Avenue. Their other opportunity was to, you know, to live through a reconstruction of that building. At the time that was owned by Olympia and York, but the 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 thought of converting a building with, you know, a million square feet of occupancy for Bear Stearns while it's occupied just was we we convinced them that probably wasn't a good idea. So yeah, so so you know through brokers and other things and with the source of capital, this one turned out to be it was owned by a a, a, a Saudi family. I think it was Saudi, I know, but they wanted to do a long-term ground lease. And so we were able to negotiate that and, and negotiate transfer of air rights from Grand Central. And Not easy. None of these deals are easy in New York City, yeah. are they? Just and you know, the other thing is you talked about Wien being one of the one of the premier you know thinkers in real estate. The other one is Zeckendorf, I think. Oh yes. And he right. had so the building that we built was the old Manhattan Savings Bank building, it's a 12-story building on the site, which had been vacant. At the top of it, there was a circular little building popped up on the roof. That's where Zeckendorf's office was. 
and his in-house architect was I.M. Peg. So oh. kind of interesting. So we ended up tearing down the building and we tore down that space. But, you know, the, the we I called the Zeckendorf family to ask them if they wanted anything before we tore it down. They said, no, just we don't need it. Did you ever do business with Bill Zeckendorf? Not really. I think we talked to some things about them, but I, what we never did. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So you're there nine years, and so that yeah. So then I was. So then the the head of the region came in one day and said, "Listen, there's a the, the Heinz is set up on a regional basis. The New York, Boston, Washington are all part of the East region. There's a then there's a Midwest region, a West region, a Southwest region, and a Southeast region. Mm-hmm. And the the CEO of the Ken Hubbard came into my office and said, "The CEO from the Midwest region wants to talk to you about a project in Detroit." That and I. I said, well, why why would I do that? Like, why would I go to Detroit? But the so what it was was we were working with General Motors, who acquired the Renaissance Center, mm-hmm. and they they we were we were acting as a development manager for them. This is a five and a half million square foot mixed use project. I know it well. I grew up in Detroit. Okay, so they so they basically they. The the Mike the, the head of the office there Eric Larson who you may know ended up leaving Heinz, and that you know Heinz had just gotten this assignment or I guess we've been working on it for about a year and they really needed someone, and so I I ended up taking the job because for me it was two things one was it would be my own office and secondly like because I was from Erie Pennsylvania that that part of the country didn't scare me you know <laughs> from <laughs> but so so i so i took the job in detroit to to redevelop the renaissance center that must have been interesting that's a john portman designed building yes and i always found it to be a maze to go in there it was like going into a labyrinth to try to figure out where to find anything in that right. property right <laughs> so so there were there were and again, early in my career, it seemed like I kept working with Skidmore all the time, but the Skidmore Chicago office had been selected to do this. And I remember the managing director there said, you could take $50 million at the Renaissance Center and throw it at the building and it would just bounce off. <laughs> it, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't have any impact. But we basically, so basically the main improvements were to take down the berms that were in front of the building because the architectural criticism was when it was built by, you know, it was Henry Ford, the second and Max Fisher and Taubman was fortressed off from the, from the city. And so like, you know, those were removed. That was one move. The second was to change the facade, the front entrance. The third was to, to build a winter garden in the back. I mean, here it faced the Detroit river and it had no visibility. And the fourth was to improve the circulation, you know, from tower to tower. And so basically what we did was suspended a glass circulation ring so that when you came into it, you got up to you got up to the ring and then you'd radiate off to the one of the four towers. And that made a huge difference. You know, it's ironic. My grandfather worked at General Motors and retired there in 1951. Yeah. And I grew up in the Detroit area. My father ran the 
largest department store in Detroit called the JL Hudson Company at the time. He was not the he ran the the, the department. He was the store manager in the store that was imploded there. Yeah, may have been imploded while you were there potentially. Yeah, but, it was. It was because that became Compuware's headquarters. Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And so, I have a lot of. I a lot of understanding. I remember when the Renaissance Center was developed and built. I was in college in Ann Arbor at the time. And, you know, my dad, because he managed that store, we had they had what's called the, the Freedom Festival every year, which was between July 1st, which is Dominion Day in Canada, and July 4th, of course. And so they had the fireworks on the Detroit River in between the two countries. And it was usually about that day, you know, between those two days. Yeah. And we went up to the top of the Renaissance Center. The you know, at that time it was not a Marriott. It was another. I think it was Stouffer at that time. I think it was a Weston. A Weston, yeah, maybe that was it. And we went to the top of that, and you literally looked down on the fireworks yeah. <laughs> from yeah, there. Cool. It, was, it was really cool. It, the scariest thing for me was going up to that roof. The parapet wall was about three inches high. You're kidding. No, it was it was not it was really, really low. So this uh, is in the hotel, the, the tallest building. Yeah. Uh-huh. Right. So the hotel was what, 60 stories? Yeah, it was, I think it was 712 feet. If I remember, I may be making that up. It's been a long time, but it's a it was a it was a twelve hundred and ninety eight room hotel. It was mm-hmm. huge, and that was one of one of the challenges we had was that the the city insisted that it not be closed down because for the it was like one of the few convention hotels downtown, mm-hmm. and so and so we had this is crazy when. So when when GM wanted to do a sign, they wanted to put a big sign on top of the hotel. And so there was a structural study done to determine like wind loads. And what they found out was that the building wasn't in conformance with current structural codes. Well, that's fine. You know, that, that happens a lot. But because the models were more sophisticated, they also found that it wasn't really in conformance with structural code at the time it was permitted. And and the, and the issue was that you had this tall cylinder. You had you you basically had elevator banks on either side, but they weren't properly connected. So you could have this torsional movement where there could be structural failure. Now, structural failure is not like you know the building's going to topple, but it's like you could in a certain storm you could have glass and stuff that comes off. And so what we had to do for the first I can't remember, like 20 stories or something. We had to, we had to stiffen the structure by basically connecting the two sides of the elevator bank. And what that meant was doing like a rebar connection up the walls and then on the ceiling. And, you know, up the, if you can imagine the noise that, that cr- that's created and the vibration yes. in a cell that's occupied, it was a, it was a nightmare. You know, we had like, we could only do work starting at like 8.30 and then shut down at 3.30. And I'm thinking if I were a guest in that hotel and I was trying to sleep in, no way. It was it was a, not an unusual Detroit story, but, you know, we eventually so, got done. Yeah, I mean, 
you're talking just the hotel. There are four other towers that surrounded this property. It's yeah. office towers, yeah. which are what, about 30 stories each or maybe 40? 39. It was 2.2 million square feet of office space. You know, the 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 footprint of the Renaissance Center <laughs> underground is 14 acres. Above ground is nine acres. It's just massive. <laughs> we had, and the hotel was complicated, but we had 29 individual projects in what we called the podium. You know, it was, it was a, when I got there, I was like, what, what did I get myself into? Uh, <laughs> you know, it was, it was a, it was a huge challenge. Well, it's analogous almost to the Hudson Yards project in New York and scale for, for a footprint, I'm thinking. Pretty yeah. close to it, right? Yeah. Yeah. Challenge. Oh, yeah. Well, when it opened in 1973, my aunt, who was the fashion coordinator at the Jail Hudson Company, was hired to run the fashion thing. Now, they had Valentino, Courage, all these really high-end oh, Parisian wow. fashion people. In yeah. downtown Detroit, Michigan. Yeah. Needless to say, it was a real challenge for her to get people to come downtown Detroit in the 1970s to shop there. No, I'm sure. Um, and then things changed dramatically, of course, to the not so great, unfortunately. Yeah. So how long were you in Detroit then, Chuck? On and off. Well, I was there for, I, I got there at the end of 98, and I, and I basically came here in 2009. So almost 11 years. Now I was also, I also had done toward the end, I was starting to work in Florida. We were doing a, a, a three performing arts center project in, in Orlando. So I was dividing my time and starting to, you know, starting to migrate potentially to the Southeast where there, there would be more opportunity. So in Detroit, did you have anything other than the Renaissance Center? Yeah, well, we ended up mainly feast up. We did. Uh, we we ended up managing the Compuware headquarters. We ended up managing the city county building. Mm -hmm. We ended up at the Guardian building. You know, doing renovations. We built a. We were working with the University of Detroit. We, we they bought a building and we modified it into a dental school. We acquired an office building in Southfield. So we, you know, we had other things going on. But I would say more limited equity opportunity just because of the condition of the market. Yes. So you're really more doing fee development work. At that time, yeah. Right. I got it. Yeah. So the, the project with, with General Motors, was that a fee development for them, in essence? The, yes. The headquarters? They, so, so the history was... We were looking to buy it when it was on the market, and we had done we had done Heinz's work with General Motors Pension Trust, you know, on other acquisitions, and so they were sort of the the you know the red herring. Like they, they we thought we were working with them, and then they then GM came back and said, actually, it's confidentially it's GM that's going to look to buy the headquarters, so you can either compete against us or step aside. And they're like, well, we'll step aside. <laughs> they, they, they hired us because they knew that, that to, to undertake a project of that complexity, number one. And number two, there was a lot of leasing and what we call de-leasing. I mean, we had to clear the way out for them to occupy. They ended up occupying about three 
I don't know, 60, 65% of the, of the buildings, but then there was, you know, so we moved, moved people around and such. So they needed someone that could, could handle the complexity of a project like that. Did, was there anybody else that they talked to other than Heinz or were you the only one? I don't think so because they knew of all the due diligence we had done on the building. Mm -hmm. Um, And so we were able to, we were able to secure the assignment. So when you came there, was that, where was the stage at the time, the building? I mean, was the deal already negotiated with General Motors? That part was negotiated. We were completing what we had, uh, the, the, I remember saying to, to the head of real estate for GM, you know, I would encourage you not to have your senior executives, you know, come into the space until later on. He said, too late, they're already here. So, you know, we would get, occasionally there would, we would get these, you know, directives to stop work because it was disturbing them, right? There's so much noise created. But it was early on. We had not, we were just starting the podium projects. Gensler was the interior architect that had redone their octagonal forms, those office buildings. And so, you know, it was designed so that the, the offices were in the interior and all open, open plan, you know, to introduce light and all that good stuff. So, but it, it was, it was just getting going in terms of some of the construction and there was ongoing design and all of these things that I participated in. Well, my goodness, you, you were, you started in New York city with, I mean, mega projects there. And then you go to perhaps the largest development project West of, you know, well, at the time we thought we kept saying, we think this is the largest redevelopment project, you know, in the country, if not the world, the only one bigger would have been the Pentagon. Yeah. Right. Well, so anyway, that was a, that was a forced renovation in 2001. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this, this was, you know, this was a lot of heavy development, you know, construction activity and design construction and management of it. For me, it was management of a team. And that was, that was sort of the appeal, but it was it was hard. I mean, the, I had to say the first two three years was real was just really really hard, and then it started to get into more of a rhythm. So, how did you have trouble recruiting people in in Detroit? No, we had no. Like when I came to that office, I think there were like 120 people. I mean, now that includes the operations, but no, we didn't have. We really didn't have a problem, you know, sourcing the deal. It was, I don't know, might have been the condition at the time, but never, never an issue. And, and Heinz has for the, for the project side at the time, we used to have like annual recruiting with the business schools. Now, occasionally it'd be, might be a little tough to convince someone to come to Detroit. If you're saying, well, you could go to New York, San Francisco, LA you know, Chicago, Detroit, you know, that, so there had to be, it was generally people that were kind of from the area, you know, at least mid Midwest or something that, that yes. would, that would take that, take that on. Well, the lure of that project, yeah. if, you're a, if you're a civil engineer or if you're a, 
any kind of development person. I mean, yeah. that would be a fascinating project to work on, I would think. Yeah, and, and a lot of, ex you get a lot of experience pretty quickly. You know, one of the things in the development world is there can be significant gaps, but here it was just like, you just throw people in and they, they get a lot of, you wouldn't get the, you wouldn't get the underwriting as much or the financing part. Right. In terms of design, construction, execution, asset management, property management, coordination of different groups, you know, it was all there. Well, you said you had 29 projects under one, just for the podium. Yeah, not at one time, but yeah, I mean, it was, it was, <laughs> it was complicated. Wow. So 2009 comes around and what? So, so, so what happened, what happened was I was in, interesting, so... <laughs> So we had a grand, there was going to be a, a grand sort of presentation of the design of the performing arts centers in, in Orlando. These are downtown Orlando. And, and so I, you know, I asked my, my boss, the CEO of the region, hey, can you come? This is like in August. He's like, no, I can't do it. What about Jeff Hines? No, I can't do it. What about Hasey Johnson's our base, vice chairman? He couldn't do it. It's like, what about Jerry Hines? Jerry's like, I'll do it. So, so Jerry flew in to, to Orlando and we had dinner with the chairman of the performing arts, you know, group, the development group the night before. And then that, uh, I'll never forget. It was like a, there was a tropical storm coming in. You know, we, we went to, we met with the mayor and like, I almost got blown across the street. You know, it was really windy. So, <laughs> did a quick, you know, review of the, met the architect, looked at the space, but Jerry needed to get out of there to, you know, make sure he could get back to, I think he was going to Aspen or something. And so, so we were sitting in the hotel room while his bags, you know, he was getting his bags and he just said, Hey, how's it going? And I said, it's great. You know, I'm doing all this. And he said, he said, you know, I think, I don't think this is a big enough market for you. And he said, I know that Bill Alsop is going to, at some point, you know, Bill's going to wind down. He said, I think Washington would be a great place for you. And then, and then he said, but don't tell anyone because I'm not supposed to get involved in these things and I've gotten in trouble. <laughs> so that's what initiated the, 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 you know, my move to Washington. And at the time, Chris Hughes as uh, the CEO for the, for the East region. So it's really his call. And I, that took about that would have been, that was in August. And so I ended August of, of 2008. I ended up coming here in May of 2009. So, you know, it took a while for Chris and I to connect and all that stuff. But eventually I came to Washington with the idea that I would be, you know, the eventual successor uh, to Bill also. And so what we did was, you know, Bill was really focused almost primarily on city center and getting that off the ground. And so we set it up so that I would be, I'd be responsible for, you know, other new business while he focused on city center. So that, that's kind of how we, we broke it out. So did Jerry actually initiate your move to some extent? To well, yeah, I think it was his, it was the, that was his idea, but ultimately, you know, not his call. That's, that's, that's Chris's call. And I think, Chris, Chris had been in the East region. You know, we were assistant project managers way back when, but Chris had since left and then came back into capital markets. 
So we really didn't have a lot of direct interact, you know, connection. So it took a while for us to sort of, you know, connect and and I eventually, obviously, he got comfortable with with me coming in. So that's that's how that all happened. Yeah, but I thank Jerry for it. He initiated it. So when you came in, so that was two thousand nine. We had just come tough, out of. That was a tough period of time. Yeah, I was gonna say. Yeah, what? I was. You know, like. So we we had. So I came in and. And, uh, you know, I, I basically there the, the firm was not really active at that time in terms of acquiring things or developing new things. And so I really focused initially on learning our portfolio and learning the people here and figuring out like, OK, where are our opportunities going to be? And, and, and I think for us early on without the capital and really with the firm focused on how are we going to capitalize city center i felt hey you know we probably should focus again on let's just do some b development stuff like i had done before because we can generate revenues with that and so i got involved we actually picked up two projects about the same time we worked on the the aamc the american association of medical colleges project near you know, the the in the district and then also at Mount Vernon Square and then also we we worked with Macerich on Tyson's Tower which is like a yes. AMC I think it's 300,000 feet roughly and Tyson's Tower is 525,000 square feet and on Tyson's AMC we had Zell was working representing them and we came in as the the development manager. And that was just a, you know, sort of straight up design and construction. On Maestrich's project, there was a lot of scrutiny in terms of do we really, you know, it was, you know, started on spec. And so I worked with Tim Steffen, who was their local uh, guy responsible for the project on not just the the design, but also the, the marketing and leasing program. How did that relationship begin with Mace, Rich, and Hines? It was a, someone on the board knew Ken Hubbard, and Ken called me and said, mm-hmm. hey, you know, would you be, what do you think? I said, yeah, I mean, I, I think it's a great location. We should, we should work on it. So that's how it started. And then I think we, Mace, Rich recognized that, and this is Mace, Rich, Alaska Permanent, they're 50-50 partners. I think they recognized that you know, they're not office folks, you know, they're retail. And so I think we were that we we had a unique opportunity where they had just finished schematic design and they asked us, you know, what would you change? And so we did make some fairly significant changes in the building. And I think, you know, simplified it a little bit. We're at work with Gensler, who was their architect. And it was it was actually for me one of the most satisfying projects I've worked on because, you know, we, a lot of times on these projects, there's a lot of preliminary, you don't really get down to it. We just got right in to the design, made the changes. We were first out of the gate for the new wave of buildings at Tyson's. And, you know, we were able to secure Intelsat as the anchor tenant, and then we were off to the races. Did, did I interviewed Bob Kettler earlier and Bob, talked about that project as well. And yeah. 
he would, when did Kettler come into the equation there? Just out of curiosity, a little bit. I think we were so that so the building had the the Vita had been designed to some extent, but it came in a little bit after us because we basically did the garage that underlaid both buildings, the right. structure at least. You, that right. was all built at one time, mm-hmm. and then I can't remember exactly when it was, but it wasn't. You know, while we were probably under construction, he was probably involved in helping modify, you know, the building. And then, you know, and then it acted as their fee developer. Three developers in one project is an interesting conversation. You know, we were kind of enough ahead of them that wasn't really an issue. And then they had Woodbridge, I think, was doing the the Hyatt. But again, we, we were fortunate in having some involvement in the plaza mm-hmm. design. So, and we, we were first out of the gate. So I don't, it never was like a, from my perspective, it, you know, we, we just went about our knitting and, and, and we're focused on, you know, the lease up of the building. So once we got it up and running, so I think I, I felt it was a really successful execution. I think Maestro felt the same way. Awesome. So, that was that was an at equity. You were an at equity on that, or were you no equity on that one? So what? But we so so what we did. So here's the other thing. I would say that every time there's been a downturn in the economy or the business cycle, Heinz has come out with something new, and I think one of the benefits of being a private company of scale is that we we constantly have to reinvent ourselves in order to be successful. And so in the, you know, when I first started in 1989, you know, there was the downturn. We had, I was fortunate in that we were working on a very large project, 450 Lexington, and and we, but but coming out of that downturn, the SNL debacle, I think Heinz had two new initiatives. One was expansion into to Europe after the Berlin after the you know Berlin Wall fell, yeah. mm-hmm. and the other was getting into the investment management business through acquisitions. The executive committee and Jeff Hines, really to his credit, pushed you know, acquisitions. I think Jerry's initial reaction was, why would we buy a building that someone else built? You know, but that became that became a, a, a big part of our of our business. I would say the the after the the downturn, you know, the 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 IT, you know, high tech sort of bust, we had our fund business really grew. We had a a, a build to suit fund for Office, et cetera, and and more fund growth. After the Great Recession, we really created an in-house research group, and I think in earnest went into expansion into other product types, particularly multifamily. That became Heinz had not really domestically done a lot of multifamily coming out of the Great Recession. You know, our analysis was: look, we're developers; we have this capability. Why in the world wouldn't we do it? So. So we started to look for, you know, for multifamily development opportunities as well. 
So you're going to do those on your own and yeah. you're going to build the infrastructure internally to manage and operate. Yeah. And, and we have, we have, you know, it's, it's now a significant part of Heinz's business. And so like right now in our area, we have at Walter Reed, where we have three multifamily under construction and four, including what Urban Atlantic has just started. There is, and then we have four other, we have three other sites that are under control. One of them, we're going to start construction, knock on wood, you know, in the next couple of months, the next one, first quarter next year. The third one will be 2023 because we've got some entitlement issues. And then we have a fourth that we are about ready to sign the, the purchase and sale agreement on. So we've got, and, and th these are Virginia, Maryland, we've got a number of multifamily and then others, other initiatives underway. And then, so that's a, that's a big part of our business now. And in terms of the management, we have a, we have a, we have a group called Willowick. That is that is the the central operations are in out of Texas, but basically now we're managing three properties here. Two that we acquired. One one's called the Alloy, which is in College Park. One's called the Emerson, which is in Centerville, and we just took over City Center, I think yesterday. So and but that's going to be a growth too. Heinz. We, we feel like we've got a really strong vertical integration. We've always been extremely strong on the engineering side. In fact, our observation is that, especially for high-rise stuff, I don't think that our, that I think in traditionally the multifamily world has been more focused on leasing and not necessarily the operation side. Our engineering will definitely add value there. So about 10 years ago, Bill Elsup, your yeah. boss, was kind enough to give my ULI group a tour of City Center right after it opened. He shared the pro forma of the project and he discussed the challenges of not having a capital partner yeah. until after over $80 million was invested in the pre-development capital. Very few companies can undertake that financial exposure in advance of a capital event. Perhaps provide some insight into how a company determines whether to commit and stay committed to a project that takes more capital and time than anticipated. So, first, I would say that's a highly unusual situation. And not <laughs> I would hope so. That Hans would want to follow his uh, because uh, that's a lot of money to tie up. Um, yes. Having said that, I think that what was perceived and ultimately turned out to be the case is it's very hard in a major metropolitan area to acquire site control of that scale. I mean, we're talking about seven city blocks and <clears throat> you could see that properly executed, <clears throat> this would be a, in some ways, you know, city shaping project. And so I think that there are there are some projects that just continue to get the green light because of how unique they are. But and, and also, I mean, the reality is 
you don't enter into these things like, oh, we're going to spend you know that much money. It just it, it accumulates over time. But I think that you know at any point along the line, when there is, a, are we going to keep going or not? I think the you know the quality of the of the design that Foster and Partners had, sort of just the feel of this thing is just okay. Let's let's keep going, and the confidence. That ultimately we will be able to secure an investor, which you know, turned out to be the case. But I would say this would not be a normal, you know, <laughs> business practice. No, that's extraordinary. And I, I don't know. If, I'm guessing that was one of the hot largest on a percentage cost basis the company ever did before having a capital event in, in its history. Oh, yeah, yeah. My I mean, guess is as I go back to what I said before, I think. You know, when there was the oil bust in Houston and, you know, Jerry had kind of bet the farm on stuff. He was like, mm, you know, we're not going to do that again. And so, so as a discipline, we try to, we try to be very disciplined about how we're deploying capital and how much pre-development risk we'll take. And that's become, as, as, as we've grown as a firm, we've gotten much more disciplined and organized and sort of routine. Like there's an investment committee meeting every week. And so we present projects and, you know, there's a need to need to have good rationale for what we're going to spend. And then we get authorization to spend a certain amount. And if we need to spend more, we got to come back. So So at any one time, how much, let's just assume that you have what, maybe a billion dollars of projects under construction at any one time that Heinz has worldwide? Oh, I would say a lot more than that. More than one billion at a time. Oh, for sure. I don't actually don't know the number, but it's, <laughs> I mean. You might have 50 projects like worldwide. One Vanderbilt's a $3 billion project. In right. Itself. So, I mean, it's, no, it's, it's much larger than wow. Okay. Heinz has a robust platform to raise capital via funds and institutional partnerships. How do you develop a capital plan for your projects internally before approaching the equity market, even if you have to have to anymore? I assume you do you seek construction and permanent financing for your projects in any event, correct? Yeah, so we have so there are different ways, John. We have for us. Uh, I'm going to talk as a regional guy because you got the you got the capital markets group, and they, and they've been terrific in terms of raising funds. And one of the things that's new for us, or not new, but revitalized in the last few years domestically, is that we have now we've got the the Heinz Global Income Trust. So that's a core plus fund for acquiring you know assets. We have the Heinz US Property Partners, another core plus that can do acquisition or development. We have the Heinz Recovery Fund, which is sort of a value add opportunistic play that can be acquisition or development. We have a group that Atlas Fund that wants to develop, you know, trophy core gateway locations. And so if we're looking at projects, and they fall under one of those categories, then you know we're going to be as we're underwriting, we're talking to the various funds about, hey, is this one that you'd be interested in? If we have strong conviction, and, and sometimes what will happen is like the the fund might like it, but they're a little over allocated in our region. They've already got two or three deals, and they want to geographically diversify, and so. 
then we'll do you know what's called one-off financing. So we'll go talk to various investors that that are you know interested in the kind of development that we are doing or acquisition. And, and so we're matching capital. And so our process is that we first have an early discussion internally with our with our funds and with our investment committee group to, you know, to to just make sure we're on the right track. And they might point us in a direction of, oh, you ought to talk to this fund or you ought to you know, this is one off. Here are some of the groups we think you might want to talk to. And then, you know, we're doing our we're doing our underwriting and we're we're having those discussions as we go along. So a lot of our developments now are oh sorry, we also have a private placement um group. And so two of our development, two of our multifamily developments right now are going through the private placement group. So for for me, having been a long time Heinz guy, we have more capital now than 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 I've seen in the past. Having said that, look, it's not unlimited. It's a competitive world out there. And it, you know, I'm making it sound easy. It's not as easy as it sounds, but but it's nice to know that we've got sort of a vigorous, you know, capital raising enterprise going on that's supporting our business activities. And then on the sorry, on the debt side, construction side, you know, we do have we do now have a group in Houston that focuses on construction debt that we can work with. And it's really, it's really helpful because they're constantly in the market. Mm-hmm. And so we, you know, it, when we're doing it intermittently here, we're not quite as savvy as they are. So we, we really team up with them quite a bit. It's a great resource. It's almost like you have your own internal investment bank as a developer, which is incredible. I mean, there are very few developers that have that kind of capability. (laughs) Well, we're getting, you know, I think that, I think scale is something that the firm focused on a few years ago. They, They had, there was a, there was a, we brought in a consultants and a, a while ago, and one of them, one of their observations was, Look, you, there's two kinds of companies, right? Like there, you get you get companies that are centralized and they're big, um, and act like they're big, and then you get you you'll get a big company that's franchised and they seem small. It's like you guys, you're a big company, but you're acting. You know, you're sort of you're so disparate that you don't function that way. And so a lot of the effort in the last few years has been to to harness and consolidate all of the activities that we have so that we act more like one larger scale company. And so I think the the leadership of the firm has been very deliberate in approaching it that way. And I think it's really starting to bear significant fruit. And we we feel good in that we've got a combination of you know, central resources, but still we're we're a regional local business. Right. And so the 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 to to replicate what we've done, the hard work of sort of growing organically in a number of markets, that's a hard thing for a top-down organization to do. Right. We've right. done that. So the so now we're we're working to combine that to to function more as a larger company. Yeah, so you develop relationships locally 
Yeah. But you have the capital markets globally. Yeah. Then execute the local activities, you know, individually. Yes. And I and I think the but I think it it always goes back to at the end of the day, you, you gotta have a successful track record of execution. I mean, it comes yeah. down to you kind of build your reputation. Yeah. One project at a time. So that's that's really important. And you know, mm-hmm. with scale, that's a challenge. Like we gotta do it right because you know the the we want to continue the the track record. And there's a real feeling, I think, within the firm of there's been a very successful legacy, and it's incumbent on us to you know do our end to hold up that legacy. Mm-hmm. So oftentimes develops their own their projects themselves without partners. I just interviewed Vicki Davis of Urban Atlantic, your partner on Parks at Walter Reed. She told me that they approached Heinz to join their team for the Project RFP. How has that partnership worked out so far? Talk about the division of tasks between companies and how you allocate them when two active development partners come together. So it's a lot of work. And the way we've organized it is there, there's there are two fundamental aspects to the project. There's what we call the horizontal or the land development, where we are joined at the hip and we've we've kind of now we've divided it by function, but we've also sort of divided it geographically because it's it's just there's what you what you don't want to do in a in a very collaborative, active general partnership is overcommit resources, but you also want to make sure that everything's covered. And so what we did on the horizontal is to say, look, we're co-GP, we're going to manage this thing together, and we'll figure out how to divide up the work. And we divide it by function, and we divide it by, by geography a little bit. On the, and so the way we've structured Walter Reed is that we then take down parcels in phases and we have the, you know, with the idea that we will, we being Heinz Urban Trident will develop the parcels, but we don't have to, we can, we can elect to sell to a third party. We, we have some flexibility there, but what we decided was on the verticals, either Heinz or Urban is going to lead it, and so so that we're not replicating effort. And and so that that's that's how we've done it. Is on the verticals, like either they're leading it or we're leading it. We're both partners. We both have the ability to you know to 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 weigh in, but we're really deferring to who the administrative member is. It's just a way to, to help organize ourselves. Mm-hmm. So that's the way you, you, was that decided right up front before you started the first shovel break and groundbreaking to, to do it that way? Or yeah, pretty much. Yeah, we did because we, we, we said that, you know, look, this is, it just, it would be, it would, it would probably end up being too duplicative if we didn't do it that way. Mm-hmm. So I know in some dual developer projects I've seen, the disciplines are strong. You know, so for instance, one group is really good with construction and ground up physical things. The other group is better at leasing and capital markets, let's say, or something like that. So they divide the tasks. 
it sounds like what you've done, and correct me if I'm wrong, is you kind of look at it globally and then do it project by project. And that that firm basically takes the lead, makes the recommendations as far as what how they capitalize certain decisions and stuff like that at at the pro, at the individual building level. And then you know, you have a collaborative overall thing. How does this fit with the overall scheme of the project? Is that is that a good yeah. overview yes. or Yes, and I think I think you've characterized it well, John. So I think that you sometimes you've asked you know the broader question: Does Heinz code GP or partner with someone? A lot of times you'll we'll find like on land deals where someone owns the land and they want to stay in the deal mm-hmm. that they they end up having a partnership interest in in the venture going forward. And it can be, it can be active. It can be passive. Typically, it's passive, but there may be some level of involvement that the 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 landowner slash contributor wants to have. But we, but it's, it's you know, it's it's more work. You know, there's more. It, my I I've been involved in a number of joint ventures of that ilk, but. It's it's harder than if we're just if we're just executing on our own. You know, we have our own systems, and it's just it's just one less box to check. So it's easier, I would say, if Heinz is the sole you know managing member GP. But there are a number of examples of where, you know, for various reasons, we have co GP or a co you know partner in these deals. What in that situation? Before we move on to something else. Tell me what strengths that you think Heinz brings to that deal and what strengths does Urban Atlantic bring to that deal that are complementary or where there might be potential conflict, just out of curiosity. I would say I, I would say that Urban Atlantic has they are they pride themselves on being sort of deeply communi- committed to communities. Mm-hmm. So their community outreach is not that we don't do it, but that that's they're really focused on that. And so we have you know monthly updates to the community that they typically are leading. I think they have more of a they've done more affordable housing. They have a better sense of some of the tax credit programs mm-hmm. that are out there. I'd say Vicky as an individual has strong construction expertise, but yes. they don't typically They'll typically hire third-party construction managers. Heinz, we don't do that. We have our own construction management team. And so I'd say on the construction side, we have more depth and probably involvement. And let me think if there's, I, I think on the other, you know, the other parts of it, financing, leasing, project management, we both have those skills. So I don't, mm-hmm. I see those as sort of complementary or Great. We both do those things. So that if if I were going to point to the emphasis, that's that's probably the the difference. So, are there any other examples? You said you've had experience with other developers and you know multi joint venture type structures. Any other in the Washington area that you can cite that are? I think right now we have. Well, we have we have another deal where. We have a, a, a co-investor 
in the GP position during pre-development. And I don't know, they have the option to stay in or not going forward. I don't know what they're going to do, but yeah, so we, we do have, we, we do have other examples and we're talking to someone right now that's got a land interest and they may want to convert that. That's typically what we find is someone doesn't want to sell outright. They want to stay in and contribute their land in exchange for participating in the venture. Right. right. But you don't, as a general rule, you, are you often pursuing RFPs with government, you know, public-private type situations, or is it more just one-off, you know? Yeah, I, th- I would say our preference, and I'm sure every developer that you talk to probably would say the same thing, is not really keen on RFP processes. Yes. I would much prefer to do, you know, an off-market deal. Right. However, however, those come up. So the so the Walter, but we have, you know, we have pursued the, you know, these particularly on, you know, I would say on multifamily, that's difficult on mixed use, especially larger scale, more complicated mixed use. We're probably better suited to be competitive right. in that arena because, you know, we we have familiarity and ability to develop different product types. I think that's important. Yes. That's yeah, well, city center is another classic example, of city course. Center, yes, exactly. Right, right. Heinz has pre- predominantly developed office buildings and mixed-use project with retail. Uh, with Walter Reed and others, you're now active in residential market as well. And this apparently now is common. You're now glo- going global with multifamily now. Is that is that the biggest new thrust of the of the company? Is the multi? I would say I would, not just multifamily. Industrial has become a, a you know a big enterprise for us. We have currently we have a site in Martinsburg, West Virginia. That's up you know it's two phase, one point six million square feet. We have under construction. We have another site we just took down in York that could be a million four, I think. So we're doing industrial development as well. I would also say you know in the living platform. We acquired in September of 2020 a project called the Heartland, which is um, it's almost 800 acres outside of Loudoun County, where we're developing 774 single-family home lots. Wow! To three developers or three home builders. Uh, you know, that, so now, so we've got and the lot. The lot, we're the largest. I've, I've been working with a partner out of Hines, out of Dallas. We're the largest lot developer in in Texas. But we've imported that business here. I think it's a good business because you know we have population growth in this area, and and I think that you know post COVID, you know work from home. That there's a there's a segment that, yep. that you know this appeals to. So that's a business life science. We have. We've been pursuing that here. We have a project, a pretty big project in Houston at Anderson Medical Center that, that's underway right now. So no, I think I think that the product diversification is an important aspect of what we do. You know, I've heard I've heard comments that boy, it's a good thing that we're not purely office developers yeah. today because you know you'd we'd be in a harder place. And that goes back to what I said is that. Heinz, one of the one of the you know one of our strengths is to constantly reinvent and deploy our skills to meet the demands of the market. 
So as you were following on that theme, how are you looking at office building investments today relative to the pandemic's impact on space demand? Have you focused on adaptive reuse of some of your older properties? With your scale and financial strength, has Heinz developed an R&D approach to re-engineering its real estate and its uses? So, the, so yes, to all of that. I think, first of all, we would say that we strongly believe in that the, that the trophy upper segment of the market will still compete well because there's, I, I think, for a number of reasons. One is tenants as they, office tenants as they are figuring out their space needs, a lot of times are taking less space than before. Mm-hmm. But in order to attract employees, that you've got to have a value proposition. And I think we found that being at the at the most efficient sort of you know floor plates and, and low carbon materials and all that kind of stuff is desirable. So we have a one of our initiatives is we call it T3. It's really mass timber. And I think we've probably done more of those than any other developer in the country. But that is something that I think is very appealing to a lot of users. And I think, you know, one Vanderbilt's an example of here's a building that's basically fully leased, leased up during COVID. If you have extraordinary real estate with good, great location, you know, there's a demand for it. So we see that for for certain. I think in terms of adaptive reuse of buildings, there are a couple of ways to go. I think what we did a few years back at the at the the our K Street building where the Washington Post is located, which we call Franklin Square, is an example of modification of a building. And it's funny, I John, I remember. I was reminded actually of what we did at the Renaissance Center. We completely transformed that building. And then I went to Gensler Space here on K Street where they had created a new entrance and and you know stairs leading up to the second level. And it reminded me that you know we can modify office buildings significantly. So we we really changed and added on to the Washington Post needs to build their newsroom. So we basically demolished a portion of the interior to create a two-room, two-level newsroom space in the middle of the building. And we were able to add sort of column free for their their events, the, the Washington Post Live. And it reminded me we can modify existing buildings and need to. They're not just static. But we're also looking at, you know, t- adaptive reuse where you take an office building and perhaps, you know, convert it to residential. That's something mm-hmm. that I think you're going to see more of, and there's not every building is well suited to it. And the challenge in DC is we've got these big sort of squat rectangular buildings yes. that don't lend themselves as much to it, but there's some that that do. And so we're looking at that. But I think I think going forward, our view is that you know the office is is going to it'll never be quite the same as it was, but it's it's not going away. Mm-hmm. And and I think from a even from an investment standpoint, it may be time to start looking because it's sort of down so far down that 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 you know it might be a good time to to really start looking at opportunities to acquire. Well, it's going to be the economics are going to be such, you know, and I don't know how long it'll take that they go down far enough where you can demolish and just start over with new trophy buildings in the local location. And you could probably do mixed use where instead of 
doing pure office, you can create a more of a live work environment in downtown Washington, which it needs badly. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the, the CBD at night, well, now, because of the pandemic, even during the day, it's pretty quiet there now. Yeah. But yeah. Hopefully, over time, a live-work environment will be created in the CBD where you have more of a 24-7 environment on K Street, which... De- definitely need it. I agree with that. Please. Is needed. Has Heinz invested in short-term alternative programs analogous to WeWork and Industrious? Or would you just lease it to them and let them manage it of that of that ilk? We have a group called Heinz Square. I think we've got a couple of locations. I think we I think we feel like that format is going to be important to offer flexibility to tenants because you know they're the 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 world is changing. So the, the answer is yes, but I don't I have I haven't seen you know, like a robust expansion of it the way I expected it to. I think maybe some of it was we hit the pause button during COVID because we were sort of geared to to ramp it up prior to that. And so, but the, the answer is yes, but I also think it's still kind of fledgling. So it, it just seems to me that the office market is still trying to figure itself out. What, what, to some extent, what I'm hearing you say. I, I, I think so. And I think that you know, it's funny. I, I ran into Mark Gibson a while ago, yes. and, and he was telling me about, I was just saying, look, I think it just feels to me like the office world has forever changed. And I think it has to some degree. But but he, he, he was saying that he's been talking to some CEOs who were saying, look, we're going to take the J- Jamie Dimon approach. You, you're either in the office or you don't have a job. And I think that's going to be industry specific. I don't think it's across the board, but my, I'm going to be interested to see what happens in a couple of weeks here because we keep hearing, you know, the law firms are going to have more and more people back. It's going to be more vibrant. And I certainly hope so. I mean, it just, as you say, it feels there are more people circulating downtown, but it's not like it was. And, you know. Well, don't you think the federal government is the key there? I mean, absolutely. You know, I, I, one, I do. Once GSA comes back to town, yeah. <laughs> that will make a huge difference. That's true. I would think, particularly in the southwest, southeast quadrant yeah. of the city. Yes. Where the traffic is there. So real estate's a local market in many ways. How has Heinz stayed involved in local initiatives to be aware of its opportunities? Well, so I think I think activity begets activity. And I think that the the fact that we now have a more vigorous acquisition program, we've bought here, you know, we bought 1015 Half Street, we bought two other multifamilies. So I think we're on the radar screen, you know, from the investment sale brokers on the acquisition front. Mm-hmm. I think as we continue to take down parcels and develop, we become, you know, more known as someone that that can execute on that. But a lot of this is, John, I mean, a lot of it is when you're in the business and we're, you know, we're talking to brokers, we're talking to investment sale brokers, you know, we're doing construction work. So consultants will come to us or general contractors, you know, you just, you kind of get plugged in, I think on the, you know, through organizational memberships, like you know, DCBIA or crew or CREBA or those things, you know, you kind of pick up. We run into 
you know, district officials. We're working with DEMPED all the time on Walter Reed. You know, there's still closeout items that we have on city center. So I, th- I think I think just by being in the community and being involved in organizations and and having our you know, managing directors and directors out, you know, sort of interacting with their peers and stuff. You just become part of the market. You learn what's going on. Mm-hmm. So how large is your local office team? How does it fit in? How does it fit into the Heinz ecosystem regarding organizational structure and governance? So, I, you know, I'm going to I probably should know this, but my guess is my my guess is we're around. Last time I saw, I think we're around 173 people in this office. Now, again, in our business, a lot of that skews heavily to our property management staffs, you know, throughout. But the way we skew is, I, I think, as I said before, we're part of the East Region. You know, New York, Washington, Boston are our three largest in that order. In this market, and the East Region is part of the the Heinz, you know, domestic group. the The Washington office is a very important office in Heinz. It's been, you know, we've been here since I don't know eighty three, eighty four, and we've had a sustained level of activity and investment. and And Washington is obviously a gateway city. Investors, when they're looking, are you know, this is a this is a market that right now, maybe on the office side, it's a little soft, but there's certainly ongoing interest in being in this market as the nation's capital, as an area that has population growth, which is a little bit unusual in the East, you know, the Northeast in particular. And the, a lot of the investments are bite size, especially in the office side, you know, because of the restriction on heights of the building. So I, I think this is a a very important office for Heinz. Mm-hmm. So talk about what you look for in a prospective employee. How do you decide on whether a prospect is a good fit? So I think it's, you know, part of it is you want to see that the employee has a level of passion for real estate. That's important. Because, you know, there are a lot, we see or at least talk to a lot of qualified candidates, as do our competitors. You know, this is a, this is a good market. This is a good place to do business. And, and, and I, think, I think particularly on the, you know, the business generation project side, I think on the construction side, you know, that it's a given that the, the, that the people have some knowledge or experience in that arena. And I, there, I think we're looking for a match of, to the extent we can, what, what is their background versus what are we looking for? You know, if we're looking for someone in multifamily, it's not to say we wouldn't hire someone without multifamily experience, but it's better at this point if we have, if we can bring in people that have specific, you know, product type knowledge and experience. On the, on the, on the project side, I think it's it's important to at least have demonstrated an interest and passion for real estate. I think it's also important that the what I look for is someone that my my boss in New York once told me because I asked him what do you how do you evaluate 
whether you're going to hire someone. He said, I imagine myself on a bus ride across the country. And when we get to the other side, if I still want to talk to him, then that might be someone I would want to hire. <laughs> That's a way to look at it, but I, but I think to me, and then obviously, you know, you, the 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 organizational and analytical skills. I think we've been testing more the analytical skills to make sure that there's not too much of a runway, and and I think in some ways we've become more institutionalized, but that's good because we can we can test and see how much they really do know their way around the spreadsheet. So, would you hire out of the? You know, a, a master's in business program. I mean, a Wharton, Harvard, MBA. Okay. You oh, would absolutely. We do that, but and I think it's. It used to be that you know we we had a we had a a program where we'd go to five or six business schools and then and then you know hire out of that. I think we've become more broadly diverse, and also, you know, we need we're project oriented business, so we may need people that doesn't quite correspond to. You know the timing of you know the the graduate graduating class. The other thing that we're doing, John, that I think I like this program is that we're bringing interns in the summer mm-hmm. that you know are a year away from graduating and and getting a good look at them and they're getting a good look at us. And I think that's a good feeder for hiring people because they're they're not cold. We have a sense of what they can do and what they want to do. Well, Heinz is almost like an institutional investor now. I mean, you're you're more than just a development company. So I would sense that an MBA is probably going to be a, a preference with regard to hiring than, you know, just an undergraduate degree, unless they have project experience and to have done deals before, I'm guessing. Is that is that pretty yeah, I think yes, I think so. I think that there's a blend. When the 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 MBA hire, we are calling a development associate. That's that's the entry level position. Hmm. But we do have some undergrads that that are that come in as analysts, and uh-huh. they're basically, you know, their program is they'll they'll you know they're running spreadsheets and they're supporting the evaluation of deals or budgets or those kinds of things, and then. The idea is maybe they work for a couple of years. And for us, from my perspective, if we do hire an analyst, we want to make sure that they've had some experience so that we're not training them and then they leave. Because the program is either, you know, they'll spend a couple of years here and then go to business school, or if they have the sufficient, you know, knowledge and background, they become, they're promoted to the associate position. Mm-hmm. So it doesn't necessarily need to be an MBA, but a lot of times that's our our preference. So how do you retain employees? I mean, what do you have training programs and yeah, you I know, mean. I think part of it is opportunity. I mean, what what it really gets down to, and a lot of times is what are what is their opportunity for career advancement? Are they taking on more? Is there is the office dynamic? Is the office doing more? Right. And and believe me, I've been in the situation where, you know, it's been slow and there's a downturn and it's you know it's just not a great environment to be in. We're in a peculiar environment right now. We've got as much work as we could possibly handle, and yet it's challenging. You know, like the budgets are high and the and and interest rates are going up. And so it's a little bit of a strange position to be in. But I think we feel like we as a firm are well positioned 
to continue to go about our business in this cycle. And really, in inflationary environments, real estate does tend to outperform. But when you get down to retention of employees, I think it's all about make the, them feeling part of the team. They're making contributions. And I have to say, with the, with the youngest generation, there, there's a what we are finding a little bit is there, there's this almost constant desire for recognition and advancement, almost unrealistically so. It's like you got to earn your stripes a little bit. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. a cultural thing. And it's just, a, you know, I came up under a different era. Like I would have been probably afraid to ask for some of the things that are asked today, but that's just me. Well, it, it seems to me, and I'm just going to express this as what I've observed, because I, I counsel young people and I work with young people constantly now, that the attitude has changed in that the employee now seems to have more, you know, and the pandemic really accelerated that, more of a control in the marketplace than the, than the employer. And I don't know if it's supported by government support with regard to contributions and things but an orientation, it's just like a different orientation today that as a, an employer, you're courting people, whereas before they were begging to, to come on. You know, it's just a different different mindset today a little bit. Am I, am I off base with that observation? No, I, th- I think that's right. But I also think that especially with young people who have never lived through a downturn, I think that changes a little bit if things slow down. I think there's going to be like a, you know, kind of a, an awakening and it's not all, you know, about how their career is. It's like, how are we doing as a company, you know? And so that's part of the maturation process. Well, in March, 2020, when everything shut down, the uncertainty was so high that we didn't know what we were into. Right. <laughs> it was, I mean, that was as frightening as 9-11 in some respects. Oh, yeah. to some oh people. for sure. Yeah, no, I agree. It was like you're looking at the cliff, and we had no idea what. Well, you jump off that cliff, what's going to happen? You know, it was, it was a little frightening. And um, you know, what's interesting too is 2020 in terms of securing new business was one of our biggest years. Hmm. It was. It was, and that's partly the people that are in the right seats with the right business plan. But I agree with you. It was like, you didn't know. And I, I think, yeah, yeah, it was, the 9-11 was, w- will the world ever be the same? And then this was more the same, but like the world has stopped. You know, that was what was different. It's just, everything stopped. Yes, it was unique. It was unique. And it, as you say, your firm was built with resilience, obviously, in mind to go through what you've been through over 60 years. You've seen it before, not exactly this, but you've seen a lot of real uncertainty and have been able to manage through it based on the infrastructure that you had built, which is which is interesting. Yeah. Urbanization and TOD have been the, le- the leading trends over the last 20 years. With the re- will the recent crisis redirect some of your thinking due to more remote work? And the cost of this type of living being unaffordable going forward, you had mentioned that you're now in the subdivision business, which is fairly new for Heinz. Is there, are there any other initiatives you're doing to kind of 
catch this trend of remote work a little bit? Well, you know, one thing one thing we're doing at Walter Reed is we're doing our first ground up co-living building. Huh. Uh, Interesting. And I think that that's that will it, it'll be interesting to see how it comes. The the preliminary, you know, feedback we've gotten is that, you know, I, I was always a little concerned. Geez, this seems like I would think the co-working is more right down in the heart of downtown, but you know. The, the fact that we can offer a little bit lower rents by virtue of not being there, we're told is going to be a very popular thing. But I think to me, that's another one. I think the, the and we continue to see, you know, the demand is holding up in the multifamily only because I believe that we've been so, you know, there's been population growth and not enough housing to accommodate. So I think in the, in the living sector, we'll continue to to, to plow ahead here. You know, we've already talked about the being able to offer better, you know, environments for the office. And I think you've alluded to the fact that we're going to see more mixed use where you, you're introducing residential to the, to the work areas. But I think, I think different people are going to solve the equation in, in different ways. Uh, I don't know that there's one solution, but the mm-hmm. common thread in my view is that 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 whatever the space is that's being provided it's high quality and value proposition you know like you have to get higher rents in some cases to in many cases to justify the construction cost but there's got to be a value proposition associated with that and we use we lean on our research group a lot in terms of you know how they're seeing the world and where we should be making our, you know, bets and, and investing versus where there might be some headwinds down the down the, the road here. Well, in addition to the pandemic, there have been some other interesting waves that's of, of social change that have affected our economy. First of all, I'll talk about, I'll ask you about ESG, which Heinz has a huge aspect of their website devoted to. Anything in particular that you would like to say about the company's effort in environmental social and governments governance issues so it's deep in our dna is the first thing i'd say when jerry hines when, when he had his slide rule back in texas he did he 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 was the first you know commercial office developer to do dual pane windows and there was a there was you know the question that came up is why would you spend more money, you have to structurally reinforce more for the additional weight, et cetera. And it's like the payback's two and a half years on energy savings. And so we've always had that thread. We also, you know, through our European operations, we did, we imported to Toledo and Owens Corning in the 90s, the first sort of underfloor air system in a building office building of that scale in the u.s so we've always had that our colleagues right now at 555 greenwich in new york are working on a very interesting sort of geothermal cooling system with radiant floor and all that kind of stuff nothing in and of itself new but when you combine all these systems Hmm. new and so there there is a very strong emphasis on esg but in a typical heinz fashion our group has studied it very deeply in terms of what 
what do we think is a realistic goal to get to sort of carbon neutrality? And I think we came up with 2040 because like we're not realistically, we're not going to get there in 2030. It's just not enough innovation. But it's a very, I think that's a very serious, and the, you know, I mentioned the mass timber before. That that's a that's a that's a very you know serious initiative. I think on the the social part, we are very conscious of the fact, like like a number of firms that we in real estate, we need to do more in terms of diversity. And that's that's been an emphasis. There are different programs in effect, but we, you know, we're we're embracing that as much as we can. And you know, what brings it home to me is I went to a I remember going to an ICSC in New York two or three years ago and, and just walked in and it was probably 80% male. I, just in terms of this is just me, in terms of diversity of anything. If you think of retail, you think of a typical guy. He's not a shopper, right? Like there should be a lot more women in these things. So, but I think I think the industry is aware of that, and I think it's changing. But we need to do the same and more. Any other trends you see that maybe opportunities going forward for Heinz that I we haven't brought up yet? I think the I I do think that the the whole Internet of Things. And how systems are going to be integrated and connected and aware. I, I think that's going to be a, a, a trend that we need to that we need to stay ahead of and 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 understand because there, there are things that can happen, you know, in our business that that are just are coming out of areas that are completely far afield. It's, it's sort of like, you know, we work and how that was a, a, a in some to some degree, a game changer. I think there are going to be other other related areas along those lines, and we need to make sure that we're mindful of what they are. I think the the whole trend of not thinking of, of space as much as thinking of the user experience is going to inform a lot of what we do. And, is, uh, is Heinz involved in the AI technology so, know, research? I mean, we have, we, Heinz has a group it's really the I think it's the great strength of the firm. It's called Conceptual Construction. It's a group based in Houston. They've been involved since the very beginning. When Jerry started to work with world-renowned architects, he needed to harness their vision to something that was commercially viable. And so we had an in-house construction group. And they still exist and they work on, you know, from project formation through the buyout of the general contractor very closely with our you know regional construction management teams and so they're always doing things like you know looking at different solar installations or glass that can you know that can be solar mm -hmm. um as i said the geothermal where it's like a learning lab and we're we're experimenting with different things and then seeing what works and what doesn't work but i think i think along those lines is the ai and you know the the whole using your phone to program, you know, demand dispatch elevators, you're seeing more of like a lot of the technology is changing and changing at a rapid rate. So, yes, we, we do. I, I have to say from our, our, my standpoint, we're, we're not in the region at the cutting edge of that. We're kind of depending a little bit on them. But if we have ideas, and there are some, some I, I would say the other part of this is like when I have a question 
on my phone or something and I give it to my daughter and she's like, boop, boop, boop. I think a lot of the innovation is actually going to come from the younger generation that understands intuitively how this stuff works more. So in development projects you manage, what, what are the best ways to mitigate risk in your opinion? What's your philosophy on Don't that? Don't do it. No, okay. Well, I think I just mentioned one. I think I think I think that for us, we have the luxury of tapping into our conceptual construction group, and what that does is, any any mistake or issue that we've encountered throughout the platform, you know, we we want to get that knowledge transferred. So that's one thing is, and, and also being realistic, especially in these times about what kind of escalation we're going to build into our numbers. I, I think that's one, one risk mitigator. The other one is to properly staff a project so that people are dedicated or at least have sufficient time to, to, pay, to do what they need to do, right? I mean, one of the things, one of the pressures is that you don't want to overstaff a project because then people are they're dissatisfied, right? They're not they don't have enough to do, or there's there's a there's a little bit of stepping on someone else's toes or their turf or that kind of thing. But understaffing too can be can be a problem because you don't you're not devoting the resources that you need to. I would say other risk mitigants is not. The, the deeper I've gotten into my career, the more I'm, I'm inclined to make the best deal I can, but don't hold out for the last dollar. It, time kills all deals. And, and also don't over-lawyer anything. I mean, I, I, I really feel like there's so many contracts that get negotiated, and then there, when there's a problem, mm -hmm. all of that negotiation really doesn't amount to a heck of a lot. So. That, I guess a handshake should be your bond in most situations. Yeah, or do, or don't rely so much on the legal language because it's really the people that you're doing business with that's, that's, right. that's at the core of it all. Yeah. So, Chuck, what are your life priorities among family work and giving back? Life priorities. Well, so I would say that for family, it's to spend as much time as I can. I think that, you know, there's a theme that we've talked about before. And I would say, actually, even for a working mother, it would be even harder. You feel guilty sometimes about not doing everything that you can at work, but you also feel guilty about not spending enough time with family. It's a tough balance to meet. To meet. But I think giving priority to, to family to me is very important. And my family, I have a daughter that's here in, in Virginia, and I have a son who's in Texas. So we're kind of far afield. So looking for opportunities to get people, get us together is important. I think for me, in the, in the, in the working world, I, at this point in my career, what I want to try to do is impart, you know, my experiences to the younger group and mentor and help them, you know, grow and see opportunity and, and just help their careers if I can. I think in terms of giving back to the community, I, I haven't done enough of this, but I think that what I want to do 
is volunteer to teach you know from my experience not you know not just in the in the in the organization but outside of the organization it doesn't necessarily just have to be real estate but i think there are a lot of the kids that could use sort of guidance and a helping hand so the, those are the things that are important and i think that we're we're all very fortunate and I feel very fortunate in having had a good career at a great company and, you know, trying to trying to help others that are that are trying to get to some sort of stability or opportunity in their life is important. That's great. So what are your biggest wins, losses and most surprising events in your career, Chuck? Biggest wins. So. So I would say, well, one of the wins, one of the wins here is in assuming the mantle from Bill of kind of transforming the office to from one of where we really were almost singularly focused on city center, which is an enormously successful, iconic project and one that the firm is proud of, you know, and should be and Bill did it fantastic job, but to one where we have a number of projects that are providing opportunities for managing directors and directors to make their own mark. You know, so they're not as large in scale as city center, but there's a, there are a lot of different things and they're different opportunities. So people can, you know, pursue multifamily, they can pursue mixed use, they can pursue industrial, you know, lot development that I, I like, I'm, 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 Grateful for the uh, the mix of uses. I would say, in terms of, if I were really to think back about what what was a moment that I was like, this is cool. When we were doing the Renaissance Center and we did we built the Winter Garden, we captured water along the waterfront during the Olympics. I can't remember which one it was. It might have been Salt Lake. It was a long time ago. They had, you know, the Olympic torch came into the Winter Garden, and I thought this is cool because. Here was a space that two years before was like a, it was like, you know, hard, it was a blank wall facing a parking lot. And now we had this really great space. I was very proud of that. I think one of the, the, the losses are there are two acquisitions I made that I probably shouldn't have made. And sometimes the, one of our biggest issues is that it's sometimes it's better to do nothing than to do something for the sake of doing it. And uh, when I've gotten into a little bit of hot waters, when I pushed, forced the issue because I wanted, I want to be active. So I think that's perspective that comes with time. And then, let's see, surprise. Yeah, I guess I would say, for me, the biggest surprise is after you know thirty-three year career or whatever. There's, I'm still learning things. That, that's kind of surprising, but it's true. And there, there's there's such a variety and evolution in our business that you never stop learning if you want to. And that, that that's refreshing. That's great. Yeah, I, I agree with that completely. I'm 68 years old and I'm still learning every day. Yeah. <laughs> it's great. So what advice would you give your 25-year-old self? Chuck. Oh boy. What advice would I give? 
I would say, I would say, first of all, to my 25-year-old self, I would say, try to figure it out on your own. But if you, so make the effort, but if you don't ask for help, don't, don't hold, you know, like avail yourself of the resources that are out there, but don't just, don't just start out that way. Try to figure it out. But I would say, but if you can't, then, then ask for help. That, that would be maybe one of the, one of the first things I would say. And then the other is if you're going to, if you're going to take something on, just commit yourself to it, you know, and, and work through it. One of the things that, you know, I, I observed from Bill is that it was just, okay, here's what I've got to accomplish today and just work through it. And, and I think that's a great strength he had. That's great. So if you could post a billboard on the Capitol Beltway for millions to see, what would it say, Chuck? Do the right thing. Do That's the right great. thing. That's great. Well, Chuck, with that, on that note, thank you very much for your time. I appreciate it. Okay. So it was a great interview, and I appreciate that very much. Thank Thanks, you. John. I appreciate it, too. Thanks for giving me the opportunity. So uh, we just listened to Chuck Waters, who is the he calls himself the city manager or city director for Heinz here in Washington, D.C. Heinz, of course, being one of the largest development firms in, in the world. And as I do almost every episode, I have a, my guest, Ramiz Munawar, joining me today to help with the postscript. Ramiz, welcome. Thanks for having me, John. What did you think of the interview? Yeah, that was a, a fascinating one to listen to. I think the the tra trajectory throughout his life and throughout his career has been an interesting one to follow. Uh, you know, I think the, the three key takeaways for me first is, you know, Heinz as a company is one that exudes quality in everything that they do. And I thought it was interesting that Chuck, Chuck mentioned that they were really the first developer to bring on Starkitects to do office buildings. Mm -hmm. which at the time was a fairly novel idea. And, you know, those guys are often backed by institutions and all other types of organizations. But at the time in the 70s and 80s, you didn't really see them designing office buildings. So I think that was really a testament to their approach on quality. Number two, I'd say is, you know, his, his conversation and his points on constantly reinventing themselves and how mm -hmm. they look at recessions and sort of downturns as an opportunity to do that. Whether it's new geography, new product types, new capital structures, they're always looking for ways to improve. And that's not only that's not only something organizations should do, but also that's what successful people do. They look for opportunities to improve wherever they can. Number three, I'd say, you know, he talked about, you know, taking on challenges that others probably won't. The post office building in New York, the, the Grand Central project was one. Taking on the Renaissance Center in Detroit was another. You know, spending 80 million before getting a capital partner at City Center was another example of that. Mm -hmm. And so Heinz has shown a track record of taking on projects that are difficult for others. And I think to grow and expand and really be the best version, you have to do that. So, so those were three key takeaways from my end. So, yeah, but you're right. The, the, the idea of reinventing themselves, that clearly was the, his mantra um, mm -hmm. as a company, and, and they've changed quite a bit 
over the years. And, you know, from the time I remember beginning in my career, they were known as a Houston developer that had just started branching out back in, in the late 1970s. Yeah. And now, you know, they may be one of the top three or four development firms in the world as far as yeah. scale. Yeah. I think they're in about 50 cities worldwide. So, yeah. I mean, they're just massive and they're doing, you know, if there's a large mixed use development anywhere on the planet, practically, they're going to look at it probably. Yeah. yeah. They're, they're one of the few that have really mastered the international scale. I mean, they've done projects, I think, in India and South America and obviously Europe, but they've got so many different different offices. And what I think, where I think that really helps is, you know, being at a company myself at Jamestown, we've got offices in other, in other continents and it's helpful to get a perspective of what people are doing elsewhere, the way they're designing buildings, the way they're using buildings, the way they're interacting with others. And that's clearly how Pines over the long term. One of the things I thought was interesting about all of this is he, he mentioned that after the SNL crisis, one of the changes they made was to get into acquisitions more and more. And Jerry didn't like the idea. He didn't like the idea of buying a building that someone else had built because they wanted to retain, you know, the overall quality of the mm-hmm. product that they deliver. Right. And you've had other guests on who have the complete opposite approach, which is we've never developed a building because there's all sorts of risk involved that you don't have with an existing building. Right. You've got a known structure, a known operating history. And there's there's more that you can mold with it. And it's just interesting how you can arrive at fairly strong returns and compelling numbers in either case. But there's an argument to be had for both. And it's just interesting to listen to both perspectives. Yeah, I mean, Heinz has this almost origins, origin feeling about things. They want to be mm-hmm. kind of the, the origin of everything in, in their what they're doing. Now, that may have evolved because they're now very active in acquisitions. They're now in multifamily that they had never been in before. I mean, they're doing things and they've had to pivot. I mean, you know, we talked about the office market. You know, they've, you know, Chuck is looking at repositioning some of their properties and trying to think, rethink, you know, do we have to core these buildings out, these office buildings to do residential? What do we have to do to think that through? And then, of course, they're going all in on on multifamily and mixed-use developments. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And as, as you know, I interviewed their partner at the parks, Walter Reed, Vicki Davis, recently. And they talk, he talks a little bit about that project and some other residential projects that they're doing around the region as well. Yeah. And getting ahead of trends was also one of the themes that was was pointed out. You know, Heinz was one of the first companies to look at the dual pane windows, which was yes. energy efficient. And I remember when I first started reading about mass timber, the first project that pulled up was T3, which was a Heinz project. And they've mm-hmm. replicated that formula in other cities as well. And then he talked about IoT and where he thinks that will impact at least the multifamily experience. But they seem to be a company that's constantly ahead of, you know, whatever's coming up next. And it'll be exciting to see, you know, the, the next uh, trick up their sleeve, if you will. So, Ramiz, you participated twice in the ULI Heinz competition. Talk about that experience and what influence Heinz had on you from that and what you learned about, you know, that company as doing that kind of research and the work that you did. 
Yeah, so it was an incredibly interesting experience for me. I participated as a grad student. The competition is for graduate students. And I had the opportunity to do this back in 2014 when the competition was in Nashville. It, it's fairly interesting. You're, you're essentially given a 30-page project brief and you're told you know, what the assignment is. And you have to pull together a development proposal along with all of the architectural drawings. So like plans and renderings and perspectives. Mm -hmm. And you've got roughly two weeks to pull all this together. That year, there were 182 submissions across the wow. country. Yeah, many of which came from Ivy League programs and similar, you know, high quality programs. And <clears throat> a jury meets in February and they narrow it down to a final four. The final four then has to do a public presentation on site. So we flew out there to Nashville along with the Harvard, UT Austin and Georgia Tech. So three really good programs. Uh, we're mm -hmm. fortunate to win it. You know, I have, I have an incredible amount of respect for the competition. It was, it, you know, everyone had a great project. You know, everyone had a really feasible project. So it was great to see. That was the first time the University of Maryland program had won. And we then went back the following year. I had graduated. I was an advisor to the team. And we had won the following year in 2015. Wow. Um, yeah. That was in New Orleans. It's, it's tough enough to win, even harder to do it back to back. But we're, you know, incredibly grateful for the support that Heinz has given to the competition. This started, I want to say it was 2001 or 2003, so somewhere in the early 2000s. And they've been sponsoring and financially supporting this competition ever since its inception. And it's been, it's been a catalyst for so many students. You know, it's given so many students an opportunity not only to learn, about real world projects, but then also to meet so many different professionals in different areas. And there's a lot of publicity that comes with it as well. So it, it's difficult to put in, put in perspective the magnitude of impact it has had on me. And there's been hundreds of other participants. So I am eternally grateful for both ULI and Heinz for pulling this together and continuing to support it year after year. You've mentioned several takeaways from the conversation about both Chuck and Heinz, what anything else you'd like to say about Heinz that really intrigued you and what you know what you'd like to you know learn more about, I guess? Yeah, I, I think one thing this this is not not as much company specific, it's more about Gerald Heinz. I was asked a long time ago, we were having a company dinner, and there were about 20 of us at the table, and we were asked who is the most famous person we've ever met. And we all went around the room and, you know, some of them had celebrities, some of them had athletes. My answer was actually Gerald Hines. Mm -hmm. And I, I had the fortunate opportunity to have dinner with him on three separate occasions. Wow. That's um, great. Yeah, that was uh, 2014, 15 and 2017. In 2017, I was actually on the jury for the competition. So uh -huh. him again, a very humble guy, very easy to talk to, you know, great smile. He, he's one of those types of people that makes you feel like the most important person in the room, no matter who you are. You know, it was an honor to, to be able to meet him and have a conversation with him. And I think that sort of welcoming nature and that sort of humility, I think, is also embodied in the company. And everyone I've met there has just been incredibly respectful of everyone that they work with and deal with. So I think, you know, character is certainly very high at the company. And so I have the utmost amount of respect for them. So let's just say you went to work for them, mm -hmm. just hypothetically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
What would you, what would your big challenge be if you were working there today? I mean, if you went to work for them and let's say you wanted to do development, Uh, Mm -hmm. you've been in asset management, you're with with Jamestown now in asset management. Yeah. Let's say you had a development position there. What, what would you focus on if you weren't to work for them? Just out of curiosity. I, that's a great question. I think it's probably the same issue a lot of people are dealing with, which is future-proofing the office, right? Right. You know, as a product, I don't believe it's dead, but it does need to be reinvented quite heavily. <clears throat> and he did mention, you know, the, the Internet of Things and all the technology that's now going into different product types. Mm-hmm. I think trying to figure out a way to change the perspective on what an office building is and what it can be would be the next challenge. You know, new supply is going to continue to come to the market. There will be winners and losers. And it's about trying to tackle the challenges and, you know, being in the winner circle, <clears throat> excuse me, being in the winner circle more often. So that to me feels like it would be, it would be the big challenge. Well, the quality, as you mentioned before, quality is, is really job one for them and always mm-hmm. has been. So, there are buildings usually lease because they're at at the trophy or even better than trophy level yeah. <laughs> projects quality. Yeah. So yeah. you know whatever you do there would be the highest quality of any project. I would think so. I would think that the best companies and the most attractive users would want to be in a Heinz property. So you know if you continue that trend, but however. Even with that trend, there's a point where it's not going to, the numbers just won't pencil yeah. if demand isn't there. So the pivots need to continue, apparently, to make yeah. it happen. Yeah. Which is important for innovation in the industry, right? Constantly reinventing yourself. You know, it's, 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 it's a lifelong challenge, a lifelong battle. Exactly. So any other takeaways or thoughts, Ramiz? Uh, I just, just, had a, yeah, just had a question for you. I think, you know, I looked up the Renaissance Center project after the interview, after listening to it. Uh-huh. The scale of it is just magnificent. And I, I thought your point about watching the fireworks from above was just yes. really interesting to, to be that high up and to look down on it. What's, what's your, I mean, you grew up in Detroit in the That's area. That's right. Your sort of fondest memory of it. Well, that was pretty amazing to get up there and, and see that in that of that property. I was always just astounded with its scale. Um, mm-hmm. There's nothing like it in the Detroit area by any stretch of the imagination. Yeah, I mean, you have to go to Ann Arbor to Michigan Stadium to see something of, the, of a scale of that <laughs> magnitude, almost. You know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, although General Motors' old headquarters was a big, big structure also in the central part of the city. Mm-hmm. And then Detroit has is known, obviously, as an industrial city historically. So there are some huge automobile factories in the region as well, as far as scale. Mm-hmm. So there, you know, I think scale, yeah, I think in Detroit is industrial. Uh, mm-hmm. But I lived in my first 18 years there and then subsequently coming back a few times in basically, well, I was born at almost the peak of the Detroit, you know, power as far mm-hmm. as influence in the early 50s. And it's declined basically ever since. Yeah. And it, it's probably hit bottom now and will come back. It's coming back slowly. But 
the Renaissance Center was built in 1973 to hopefully, and they called it the Renaissance Center because it was hopefully a Renaissance. But the way it was built and, you know, how cold, it was like building a spaceship in the middle of downtown Detroit. Mm-hmm. It was just really an austere structure that just wasn't a friendly place to go, you know, from a real estate standpoint. Mm-hmm. Uh, so many wrong things about the project. Wow. Yes. And and Chuck talked about some of the structural issues, too, that we mm-hmm. had to deal with in redeveloping it, yeah. which were fascinating yeah. that I didn't, wasn't Love aware it. of. They had yeah. 26 projects going on simultaneously in that redevelopment. Yeah. I mean, that's... Yeah. That's astounding. I mean, <laughs> you know, it may be, as I said, it's it's one of the largest structures west of New York City in the country mm-hmm. uh, in total scale. Yeah. And so it just, you know, was, he, he got a lot of experience from doing that and learned quite a bit, I'm sure, about a lot of things. And then dealing with the city of Detroit, which was challenging in itself. And then working with General Motors, who was basically their boss through that whole project. Mm-hmm. And so he had a, it was like a public-private partnership, that deal. Mm-hmm. And so it just a lot of orchestration of people and projects and everything else. So that was, you know, I would argue one of the top 20 projects in the history of Heinz as far as scale and, and complication. Yeah, I would think. Sounds like it, yeah. No question. And I just, you know, it's just always been this huge downtown structure for me in my life. Of course, I remember when before it was built, and there was two or three buildings were built in the 1930s that were the tall buildings in the city, including the building my father worked in, which was the Jail Hudson headquarters building which was the second largest department store in the country and fit mm-hmm. total space over two, it's over a million and a half square feet in a block. Wow. And two, two city blocks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Built in about four different phases. And anyway, so, you know, that's downtown Detroit. It was, when I was a kid, it was a great place to go, but it deteriorated over time. And hopefully Heinz brought some life to it. I haven't been in the building since they did the renovation. I'd be interested to go back just out of curiosity, but I haven't been to Detroit in over 10 years now. So, so that's, that's the answer there. Got it. Yeah. Very fascinating. I'll, I'll have to check it out someday as well. It's an interesting structure. No doubt. No doubt. So, Ramiz, anything else you have to say or thoughts? No, that that's basically covers it. I appreciate the okay. opportunity to listen and provide feedback. Great. Well, listeners, thank you for joining me once again. Chuck Waters was a you know, very interesting guy. And so we'll come back in the next couple of weeks with another episode. Thank you for joining me. 